Uh, welcome, Salem Chapel family. My name is Will Plitt, um, and we just want to welcome you if you're in this room or in a living room or in a random place like Georgetown, Texas, wherever you might find yourself today. Um, that had meaning behind it, but that's for a whole nother story. Um, so we're excited you're here. Uh, every week, uh, Salem Chapel gathers on Sunday morning to worship and to celebrate and to lift high the name that is above every other name, and his name is Jesus. Uh, it's also an opportunity for us, for the people of God, uh, to be equipped for the mission of God. As we leave out of here and scatter uh, wherever it is that we lived, as we bring the good news of Jesus to people where they live, learn, work, and play. Uh, so out of the gate this morning, I want to wish uh, all of you, uh, if your fathers are in the room, you're listening to this, happy Father's Day. Raise your hand if you're dad. Uh, just, there you go. Beautiful. We got lots of them in here. Uh, this morning, we could uh, recognize the youngest dad who has the most teeth and the least amount of hair. And we could also do the oldest uh, father in here has the least teeth and the most hair, but we're not going to do that today. Uh, instead, what I would like to do uh, is pray uh, for you as a father. Um, and then I would also love to pray for us as we open up the word of God this morning. Uh, I believe firmly uh, that he has a word for us today. So uh, join me in prayer as we go to our Father. Heavenly Father, Father of mercy. You are the merciful Father seated and enthroned high above in the heavens. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the gift of fatherhood. I pray, Lord, as, as men that we would walk in a manner worthy of the gospel that we would look to Jesus as the perfect man, as our example, that we would lead and love and serve our families well. There's a, a generational um, stake in this, Lord. And so I pray that we would model well the gospel and continually point our families to our perfect heavenly Father. Lord, this morning as we open your word we are a people in desperate need, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we know it or not, we are in desperate need of you and hearing from you. Holy Spirit, would you open our hearts and open our minds to give us a bigger and grander view of who you are and what our Heavenly Father loves to do for his children we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We are in a series, a summer series, uh, entitled Look Up. Uh, and so we're working our way through the Psalms of Ascent. And so I wanted to, um, this morning, give you, if you're a reader, uh, this is a book that I'm going to pull a couple of thoughts from. I'm actually reading it presently. I'm almost finished. Probably one of the, uh, it would fall into my top 10 list of books uh, that I love the most. It's had a profound uh, impact and effect upon me. Uh, it's Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Uh, if you're a reader, you should read this. Read it slowly. Uh, it's an incredible book on the heart of God uh, and understanding what that means in a more profound way. So the series, uh, if you're new or joining us for the first time today, 
Um, we're going through the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are comprised of 14 Psalms. They're also referred to as the Pilgrim Songs. So if you know your geography well, the city of Jerusalem is situated on a high hill. So three times a year for one of the uh, main festivals, the Jews would work their way into the city. They would ascend into the city and they would actually sing these psalms of ascent as a reminder of who God is. Is and what God had done and what he promises to do. So the actual proper way for us to unpack this psalm is not for me to read it to you, but for me to sing it to you, which I'm not going to do, but I'm going to spare you that on Father's Day. Um, the psalms were written. So if you ever asked, your question, ever asked the question, why were the Psalms written? Because when you read the Psalms, you notice the, the, the composition of the Psalms, the makeup is very different than the prophets or the gospels or the epistles. The Psalms were written primarily to help us rightly carry and shape our emotions. Though, just like we will today, we can glean great uh, theology and doctrine on who God is. There should be more to us as Christ followers than only, solely, simply doctrinal refinement. So the Psalms help us to engage our emotions. Listen to some of the emotions that the Psalms deal with. Loneliness. Love, all, regret, contrition, turmoil of soul, shame, delight, joy, gladness, fear, anger, peace, grief, desire, hope, pain, broken heartedness. So as you read through the Psalms, which I encourage you to do and, and pray through the Psalms, one minute the psalmist is like James Brown and I feel good. In the very next verse, it's like ACDC's, I've, I'm on a highway to hell. <laughs> and you have this pendulum that swings between all these emotions. And how do we rightly interpret these emotions and feelings that we are going through? And as you might know, as God has created us in his image, to be image bearers of him, part of our makeup is that he created us to be emotional beings. And we need to have a biblical understanding of how to rightly view and understand and channel our emotions. It's also worth noting that we should never lead with our emotions or our feelings. Why? Because our feelings and our emotions can be wrong. They are flawed. So we lead with the word of God and we begin to understand how the feelings, part of our makeup as being image bearers, falls in line with what God says. So when you get to passages where the apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 verse 26, he says, be angry. Isn't that a great command? But then he says, but do not sin. So I've got to understand how to channel my anger in a righteous versus an unrighteous way. So Psalm 123, you can go ahead and turn there, um, is referred to as the Psalm of Humility. It's a short psalm, but it takes a lifetime to learn. One pastor uh, asked his congregation one Sunday morning, he said, I want you to raise your hand if you're sitting uh, here today, if you've learned humility. 
of which some of the people in this congregation raised their hands. And then with the next breath, he said, be careful if you raised your hands because you could be proud that you just did that. Do you see how subtle it is? False humility is actually still a form of pride. The other thing that I want you to keep in mind as we get into this contempt of the people of God that they were experiencing. One of the early church fathers, St. Augustine of Hippo, in his writing, City of God, he talked about uh, one city that's comprised of two cities within it. And he said that there's a city of faith and there's a city of unbelief. The city of faith is the people of God who love God, who are devoted to God and to the things of God. A salt and light-filled people, a smaller city in the midst of a larger city of unbelief, of people that don't believe in God, don't acknowledge God, don't worship God, and actually will ridicule and shame and bring contempt on the people that do. So I want you to think about that image specifically as we get into verses 3 and 4. The other thing I will draw your attention to as I read the psalm is that the word eyes is used four times. So we've got to pay attention to that. The word mercy is used three times. And the word mercy is connected to the word contempt, which is used two times. So let me read Psalm 123, and then we will unpack it verse by verse. To you... I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. Verse 1. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says in the book, Tozer says... What comes to mind when people think about God is the most important thing about us. So here's some questions I would like to unpack and answer this morning. Who do you perceive God to be? Who do you perceive God to be in times of trials and in times of suffering? Who do you think God is when he is listening to your prayers? It's a deep question. How does God feel about us and about you specifically? So in the everyday stuff of life, where do we run to and find our help? What is it or who do we look to 
for those things. And what the psalmist is opening up in verse 1, he is reminding us that we are to continually to look up to God who is enthroned in the heavens as the source of my help and my deliverance. We are not to look to our circumstances, which will not bring you hope. They will bring you greater despair and they will not deliver you. And so the natural default of our human nature, even as followers of Christ, is to not look upward to God when we experience storms, uh, stormy seasons. We love to look at places like inward. We love to look inward. Like, I've got the answers, I'm smart enough, I'm wise enough. That's where we get the ridiculous two words, which is an oxymoron called self-help. If you ever thought about self-help, you're saying to yourself, self, will you please help me? And the ridiculous thing about that is that self is what got you there in the first place. It is stupid. It's so stupid. But we do that. We love to look downward. We, we get so frustrated that we just simply want to throw in the towel and go, I, I don't know, I give up. So we become self-defeated in our walk. We love to look outward. This is a big one. We, look, we love to look outward. Well, this person or this thing or this set of whatever it might be can bring me help, hope, and deliverance. The psalmist is saying, as I made this list that I'm getting ready to read to you, that I am higher than everything. I'm higher than your marriage, your singleness, your divorce, your sickness, your abuse, your trauma, your loss, your suffering, your persecution, your career, your feelings of being trapped, stuck, forgotten, overlooked, mistreated, your failures and your successes, your loss and your, your gain, and even your neglect. Isn't that comforting to you? Psalm 55 verse 22 says, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. So it's a picture of the psalmist looking so high that he could not look any higher. He's looking to the God who is enthroned in the heavens, who is over all, who knows all at all times and sees all at all times. It begs the question for us this morning, how big is your God? How big is your God? How big is the rule and reign of God in your life? Is he completely, absolutely, and totally sovereign over all, or is he just sovereign over some things? It determines your theology and your doctrine, depending upon how you answer that. Where do you fix your hope, your confidence, your expectation? Listen, this morning as we sing and we pray and we read the word of God and we preach and we give offering all forms of worship, we worship a God who spoke creation into existence. 
Listen to just a few of the names that scripture attributes to God. This is not exhaustive. This is a small microcosm of many more passages. But here's a few. Acts 4 verse 12. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 2 verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Acts 4 verse 17, this is where the religious leaders tell Peter and John, do not preach and use the name of Jesus anymore because his name is turning the entire city upside down. How about a little Old Testament? Uh, 1 Samuel 17 verse 45, the epic showdown between David and the giant Goliath. Listen to what David says. You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled. That's bold. Philippians 2 verse 9, the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every name or every knee rather shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. When Jesus walks in his earthly ministry, it's in his name that the dead are raised, the demons are exercised, the sick are healed, the wind and the waves are silenced by his voice, nations rise and fall, leaders come and go, and people are brought from spiritual death to eternal life. That's how powerful the name of God is. Whose name, my friends, is bigger and worth trusting? My name or his name? Someone else's name or his name? The prophet Isaiah writes in uh, chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. Listen to this. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Isn't that good news? (laughs) For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The Hebrew word for thoughts here is not simply mental reflections, but it means God's divine plan purpose, device, intention. They are higher and they are grander and they are enveloped in a compassion for which we as fallen sinners have absolutely no cubbyhole to put that in. If you read any bit of history, uh, Corey Ten Boom, she was the Dutch Christian who worked with the Dutch resistance who helped many Jews escape, even at times hiding them in their own home. Uh, She is eventually uh, captured and she's arrested and she is sentenced to a Nazi concentration camp. Now, you know that she had questions about her faith in those big moments. Listen to what she said in the darkest of moments in her life about her faith. She said, quote, when the train enters a tunnel and everything goes dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off the train. You sit still 
and trust the train engineer. I love that. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life is not the sin that you so easily and readily run to, but the dark and wrong thoughts about God's heart and who he is that cause us to go there in the first place, that keep us from looking to him as our ultimate source of help, hope, and deliverance. In the very next verse, the psalmist is going to give us two very common examples in ancient history. He's going to give us two types of servants that would have served in a household. And it's very interesting that he draws upon this particular example because here's the reality of a servant back then. A servant had no real power. A servant nor had the capacity to protect themselves, much less defend themselves. They were completely dependent upon the master for their life. And it's going to picture us as servants of the most high God. Verse 2, he uses eyes three times. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master. As the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, a more even intimate form of servantship, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Let me give you a a modern example that might help us understand better servant. So before I went into pastoral ministry uh, back in in the 90s, uh, I taught martial arts. That's what I did. I taught Taekwondo and Hapkido and I did all that. I learned um, from, he's now become a, a world-renowned grandmaster, uh, Grandmaster Byung Sok Lee, Korean. When I first met him, he had about three English words that he knew. And I had zero Korean words that I knew. So how did you learn You had to learn by watching every single thing. You had to pay attention to the the smallest of details so that you did not miss anything. How the angle of a wrist or how that finger, you know, where that finger goes when you do this or this kind of stance. Or you had to pay very careful attention. So when you became eventually a black belt, which we call that a serious beginner. You're now a serious beginner. You now uh, are eligible. You're kind of at the top of the food chain uh, in some regard, but now you're at the bottom of the food chain again. So you're eligible for a whole new form of task. One of those tasks was to assist the master instructors as we examined lower ranking students. You know what that meant? It sounds really cool. It meant you stood against a wall, sometimes for up to five or six hours because exams took a long time. At military attention, like this, And you could not touch the wall. And you had to be ready. If the master looked at you, he wouldn't call. He would look to you. And if you missed it, oh, you would not want that to happen. And he might not ever call you or he might call you. And you had to be ready to go on the spot to perform whatever it was they were asking you to do to help assist. Why do I say that? And use that ridiculous example. (laughs) You had to pay careful attention at all times so that you did not miss 
anything. When you look at verse 2, it leads with the word behold. Behold gives us something to consider and something to ponder. And it's this. A servant's posture was one of humility. Humility means that we know our place. It means as a Christ follower, we understand who we are in light of God. A servant's posture, secondly, is also one of dependence. That we know where our help and our protection and our deliverance comes from. But Jesus will echo that later in John 15 when he says, Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. It's dependence upon him and our abiding. A servant's posture is one of patience. It means that we don't rush ahead of God and become Lord of our life and take matters into our own hands. It's learning the joy of submission and obedience as servants of Christ. It's the daily, sometimes within the day, the moment by moment surrendering of self and bowing uh, the bowing of our will before our heavenly Father. A man by the name of Alan Hirsch, who's become a friend over the years, he's a missiologist and, and thought leader, he, he wrote this recently, I really love this. He said, quote, a good church upbringing will do many marvelous things. And it will if you've been brought up in church. But as he was observing the church, he says, but one of the unfortunate things it also does is convince you Jesus is to be worshipped, but not to be followed. That really hit me. Like, am I a, just a fan of Jesus? Or am I a follower of Jesus? And I'm convinced as we work with the, the church across North America that there's many fans of Jesus occupying seats Sunday to Sunday, which is wonderful that they're there, but there's even fewer followers. If we were to conduct a survey and ask two questions about people's salvation, and we ask the question, do you believe Jesus is your Savior? With confidence... We would say, yes, Jesus has saved me from, from hell and from Satan and from eternal death and separation from God he, by his great life. Yes. If you ask the follow-up question, do you believe Jesus is your Lord? We know what the Sunday school answer is. Well, yes. But do we have as much confidence in knowing what that actually means and entails for our life? And I would say that, that most Christians uh, do not have the same confidence in answering that question. And a lot of it is kind of the, the church and the gospel that we heard growing up that has kind of formed our understanding of who God is and what Jesus has accomplished. When we read through the New Testament... New Testament spiritual maturity was not marked by knowledge. It was marked by obedience. 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 I love the picture that the servant portrays. It's a picture of watching and waiting. Watching and waiting. 
But do you know the problem we have with that? (laughs) Is that we are an impatient people, are we not? We don't like to wait. We live in a microwave culture where we like to just accelerate everything and take matters into our own hands. I'll throw myself under the bus this morning. Jesus, at times, is not Lord over my driving. I can become a very impatient driver, especially if a slow driver gets in front of me or a driver that should not be on the road, which I literally got run off the road this past week. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. He's still sanctifying me. Have grace for me, right? So what have I done over the years? Well, I don't like to be patient. I'll take matters into my own hand. So I have reaped what I have sown. I have acquired a few, couple, some tickets over the years. Illegal passing and speed, you know, going, uh, the whole thing, right? Right? We're not an impatient, we're a very impatient people. What about if you're here and you're single? What about when we become impatient in our singleness? And we love to take matters into our own hands. Maybe we compromise who we date. Maybe we begin to compromise what the word of God says about having sex outside of marriage. We begin to take matters into our own hands. What about if you're married and we become impatient? Well, my wife, man, she does not make me happy. She is not meeting my needs. And we become impatient and we begin to view wrongly that marriage is a contract that I can break because, man, this other lady, she really gets me. Instead of a lifelong covenant to uphold as a picture of how Christ has laid his life down for his bride. You could fill in the blank with anything. See, we don't look to culture or to a broken and fallen world on how to inform us on what to do and how to live. We look to the word of God. We look to Jesus as our perfect example. And the psalmist is saying in verse one and verse two that true saints, we fix our gaze. We fix our eyes on all that comes from the most high God. And we wait patiently for God to deliver and to direct us. It's a call. My friends, to fix our eyes upward on the God who is enthroned in the heavens or we might miss something. What is it that we might miss? He introduces what we might miss at the end of verse 2. Till he has mercy upon us. He's going to unpack this in greater detail in verse 3 and 4. Have mercy Upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Do you feel the the urgency? For we have had more than enough of contempt. Do you feel the desperation? Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. So I love the Psalms because you can like... Just see the pendulum swing so much from one emotion to the next. Is oh, we're on top of Mount Everest. Oh, we're in a, a, a pit and we have no way out. Now, the psalmist tells us 
who is bringing contempt to them. We do not know what the contempt is or the source uh, from which they're experiencing this. We do know, because the Bible teaches us, that the nation of Israel was a very rebellious people. They, they continually worshipped and ran, chased after other idols and gods. They abandoned the, the worship of the one true God. Uh, the temple is destroyed, their place of worship in 586 B.C. We know that the Babylonians and the Syrians, they exile them. And a lot of bad things happen to the nation of Israel. But when you look at verse 4, at the original language, it literally says that our throats have been filled to no end. The, the, the problem is that shame has become so consuming that they are filled to the brim. They're at the end of their rope. They, they could no longer endure one more minute. They needed God to reach down into their circumstances to bring deliverance of the, his people. So what is contempt? Here's a mild and somewhat humorous example of that. I have contempt for my son who goes to my refrigerator and drinks out of cartons and containers instead of a glass. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to me. But on a serious note, the definition of contempt is a feeling, a deep feeling of scorn toward another person. Or it's an act of showing disrespect towards someone or something. The source of their contempt is coming, as God's word says, from those who are at ease. The proud, the self-content. They are saying, who is this God that you should obey his voice? And then the, those same people turn around and mock and ridicule and bring contempt to those who do. I had a very good friend uh, when I was a pastor in Raleigh. And um, he was in his 60s. Uh, he lived an openly gay lifestyle, and he was an atheist. And not just an atheist, he's a very, very smart, very well-informed atheist. And he was also a militant atheist, and we became friends. And he would push my buttons. He would, he would just, ah, oh, all the time, just like poking a bear, like say things, and, you know, Will, what about this? And anyway, so one day... One day, he asked, we had him and some neighbors over. He said, Will, in front of all, all our neighbors and friends, he said, Will, when did you convert from right thinking to wrong thinking? Meaning like, you became a Christian, now you think wrongly. And I said, I'm glad you asked me that question. And I shared the gospel with all of them. And my grace story and what God had done in my life. It's amazing. When we moved, he had moved from being an atheist to an agnostic. He was acknowledging, well, maybe there is a God. That was progression, right? In Psalm 123, 
Shame has overtaken the people of God and overwhelmed the people of God so much so that it is threatening to choke out their very existence. They feel abandoned, they feel rejected, and they know what it's like to lose social position in society. And it's like the community, the people of God, it's like they're tapping out. They're yelling, uncle, 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 uncle. God, show up, have mercy on us. I believe that if we could pick one passage from the Old Testament that best describes God, I believe this would be at least a contender. It's Exodus 34, verse 6. It reads, The Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Notice what it doesn't say. The Lord, the Lord, exacting and precise. The Lord, tolerant and overlooking. The Lord, disappointed and frustrated. It's an incredible truth and reminder of God's special commitment to the people with whom he has gladly bound himself to in an unbreakable covenant bond. He's saying there is no termination date to you on my mercy. My, you can't outrun my grace. You can't outrun my mercy. You can't evade my goodness. My heart is fully set on you. My heart is fully set on you. Many years ago now, my, my son, who was very little at the time, received um, his greatest gift that he had ever received in his life. And uh, we worked with Santa Claus to make sure this got delivered on time. And um, he came down, he's just a little little guy, and um, he came down and you could tell there was a little bit of disappointment and sadness in his eyes because he didn't see what he really wanted. And uh, after, you know, we opened a few gifts, we said, well, it looks like you missed one, my son. Look outside. And it was his first dirt bike. And I kid you not, he got so unbelievably excited and ecstatic that he headbutted the wood floors. I said, son, put your helmet on before you headbutt, right? Um, now imagine, imagine, imagine if my son had gone up to his room upon receiving this incredible gift, best gift he'd ever received, I think, and he went to his piggy bank and he emptied his piggy bank out and counted the pennies and nickels and maybe a couple dollar bills or a two dollar bill, whatever might be in there. And he came and he said, he said, dad, I, I want to pay you back for the gift, how disappointing would that be? How, how sad would that be as a father for your son, your child to not enjoy the gift that you have given? What is the point of that? That my son in that moment, if he wanted to try to pay me back, needs to change the very view of who his father is and what his father delights to do for his children. What does God, what is he saying to us in this passage? Our very view of God must change. 
We have such a small and oftentimes wrong view of our heavenly father. It offers us, this truth offers us great, great encouragement to those who are enduring presently contempt. For those of us that will endure once again contempt in the future at the hands of sinful people. And here's the dangerous thing about contempt. If it goes unchecked. Here's what it leads to. It leads to deep, deep shame. Shame then, if it goes unchecked, leads to fear of rejection. Then it leads to fear of abandonment and intimidation and expulsion and loss of position within society. That's why when someone is bullied, whether physically or digitally, that's why it's so powerful because it renders that person utterly powerless so they think so they think did you know that God's heart of mercy is so big that he loves to mercifully respond to his children as we dump the ruin and wreckage and sin and idols of our lives into his lap This is not dependent upon you keeping yourself clean. But us simply taking our mess to him where we are. And he loves to pour out his mercy. Dane Orland uses the example in the book of a, of a grandson sitting on his grandfather's lap. And the grandfather shows him a crisp $100 bill. To which the grandson concludes, oh, my grandfather, he's so wealthy. (laughs) But unbeknownst to the grandson is the untold wealth, the tens of millions of dollars that is in his grandfather's bank account. The tens of millions of dollars of real estate that he owns, of which that little crisp $100 bill is only a tiniest reflection of how rich he really is. I love that analogy. So as we close this morning, as we land the plane, I want to close by saying that Psalm 123 ultimately finds It's fulfillment in Jesus. In Jesus. Nowhere in the Bible is God ever described as being rich in anything except for one thing. What is that? Mercy. Mercy. When the Apostle Paul talks about God's mercy in chapter 2, you read the first three verses are very dark They're very, very hard to read because it's a reminder of who I was as a sinner before Jesus saved me. If you're not a Christian, it's a reminder of the life you are walking in right now. That we were dead in our trespasses and sins of which we once walked. We followed the course of this world. The devil was our father. We were uh, sons of disobedience. We were under God's wrath. We lived in the passion of our flesh, 
carrying out the desires of our body. Verse 3, the two most beautiful words for me in all of Scripture, but God. But God. Listen, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by the by grace, by grace, you have been saved. Jesus comes and is the greatest servant of all. Matthew 10, verse 45, where the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Behold, the posture of Jesus, the humility of Jesus. Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8. Jesus made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Behold the dependence of Jesus upon his heavenly Father for his earthly ministry. The Gospels tell us in many places that he would go and pray to the Father. That when Jesus spoke, you were hearing the words of the Father. When Jesus acted, you were actually seeing a manifest demonstration of God at work incarnate in Jesus Christ. Behold the patience of Jesus. I love how the Apostle Peter captures this in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Listen. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For our joy, our salvation, and our comfort, we remember as Christ followers that Jesus experienced contempt and shame and scorn at the rejection of sinful men. Yet he never shrinked back from fully accomplishing the work of salvation on the cross for us. Hebrews 12, verse 2, the writer says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Such good news. If you're a father, being Father's Day, and God forbid you ever had a a child get very sick and, and get a terrible, terrible terminal disease, what would your view as a father be toward your child? You would hate the disease, would you not? But you would have a deeper sense of mercy love and compassion for your child. So it is with the heart of our Heavenly Father. He hates the disease of sin, but he has mercy for the sinner. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or if you're unsure, which means you probably haven't, look to Jesus. 
John 12, verse 32, and I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. God, who is enthroned in the heavens, Father of mercy, loves to deliver and re-deliver sinners who find themselves drowning in the sewage of our lives and who need rescue. That's the kind of God we worship. That's the kind of God that we follow. He wants to extend mercy to you now and every minute of every day. The real you, not the social media you, not the perfect you that you project to the world, but the real you with all of the blemishes and all the skeletons in the closet. God's heart, out of his heart flows mercy. Do you know the problem with that is our reluctance at times to receive it. May it not be so. May his mercies be new every day. Great preacher and theologian Jonathan Edwards said this about God's love and mercy. It is an ocean. It is an ocean without shores or bottom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great Father of mercy. Your mercies are new every day. Your mercy is unending. It is an ocean without shores or bottom. There are people listening that need to experience your mercy for the very first time. And there's those of us that are listening that need to experience mercy again because of where we find ourselves. Father, you delight as a good, good, and perfect Father to give us your mercy, to give us your love, to give us your grace. You have demonstrated that through the perfect work of your Son, Jesus. May we look to you. May we look to him as our example. Give us the courage to walk by faith, not by sight. As we look upward to your hand, as we patiently wait and watch for you to do what only you can do. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.